If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Deconstructing psyops, propaganda, and mainstream media garbage. Connecting the dots. You're with Matt Arrett and Connecting the Dots on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome to Connecting the Dots. We're here for a second hour of this three-hour segment. We're, we're just going to be waiting right now for uh, our guest, Joaquin Flores, to join. But until we do, I figured I would just speak a little bit about some of the elements that were brought up in the previous segment with Vijay Vargas, V the Gorilla Economist, as we were discussing the two opposing paradigms that are currently clashing and pulling humanity in two different, very different, incompatible ideas of what the world should be. Um, based upon an idea of, on the one hand, man made in the image of some creative living force of reason and discovery that allows us as a physical species to discover new properties, new laws of the universe when we are creative, when we're optimistic, when we feel like we have something to live for, and we have a proper education that gives us real knowledge instead of just an ability to uh, to memorize formula that we don't fully understand, but real knowledge that allows us to build things when we have that type of attitude, that type of cultural spirit, esprit de vie, a reason to be, to have a family, well, we will leap, leap over the limits to growth. We will always look for the limits of what is holding us back and holding our children back in order to make those types of new revolutionary discoveries that are needed that then translate into new forms of technology. Technology, which doesn't just grow in a, as like some demonic force in some way independent of human agency as those like Yuval Harari or fu futurist transhumanists like Ray Kurzweil, the Google priesthood of transhumanism would like us to believe that uh, that requires us to merge with, with machinery in order to stay relevant from the inevitable occurrence of the singularity, the 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 thinking machines that become self-aware that will then obviously conclude that human beings are just a cancer, an incompetent, mediocre cancer, not fit for this universe and will extinguish us. We have all of a sudden, we, have, we, we all know this to be true, that Kurzweil and, and Harari and, and others must know that this is, of course, this is true. We've all seen this in Terminator, Hollywood movies, The Matrix, We've seen this since 2001, A Space Odyssey. And I don't think that the CIA influence over Hollywood scripts and movies has anything to do with some form of brainwashing or predictive programming that put these thoughts in our head. No, no, no. I'm sure that the, the CIA and, and these Satanists that have infiltrated and taken over control of Hollywood movies over the, the past decades, I'm sure that they just really want to entertain us. I don't, I, I'm sure that they're not trying to brainwash us about uh, some dystopic future that we have to adapt to. No, no, no. Obviously, this is heavy sarcasm for those who can't see my face or hear the, uh, or detect sarcasm, maybe. <clears throat> some, some people can't. But the fact is, the reality when you look at what causes technology to qualitatively improve in such a manner that we can have more people at a higher quality of life that other animals cannot do, it's because there is a human agency that's tied to both pure discoveries into the universe and the type of freedom to think creatively about the technologies that we can create. When you discover electricity, you can create lightning rods. You can all of a sudden communicate information across vast distances using light, the power of electromagnetism. Um, this gives us a power over nature also when applied to the production systems. We don't have to just physically be a handicrafts person that is physically making every single thing we live in as we did back in feudal times. We all of a sudden can have a division of labor where you can all of a sudden get really good at something and know that you can rely upon a community of other people who are good at other things and share your skill set for a greater, a real greater good, not the, not the Klaus Schwab greater good. But that all comes from a moral cultural outlook, first and foremost. And we saw it with the, the type of beauty that emerged with the architecture of the, uh, the glorious, you know, golden renaissance of Florence in the 16th century, the 15th century that brought us, that pulled humanity out of the yoke of dark age, of depopulation, of forever wars, of ignorance, of flagellance, whipping themselves, moving from town to town, spreading, spreading all sorts of pathogens, 
um, while there was a just nihilism, right? People were doing dancing. There was a dancing cult, many dancing cults all over Europe of hedonism, orgies, people who didn't have anything to live for, but the moment that then spread in the form that people ended up dancing themselves to death, hallucinating in that sense. That was the the ethos of the ple of the the masses who had suffered under a hell a hellscape during the the you know the black plague and the collapse of civilization in that period. What accounted for the glorious Renaissance buildings, the the engineering feats of Da Vinci's, and it wasn't just Da Vinci. There were many others who were thinking intersectionally. They were thinking about music, art, painting, the pigments, the science of light that causes pigmentation that we can utilize to reflect the beauty of God's creation, but also do it in a manner which is uplifting to others and do it in a way where you're also creating beautiful buildings that people live in, that they commute in, um, that creates better, better forms of schooling, that trains orphans, that trains people who are not part of the high aristocracy to develop the best um, skill sets of engineering, of learning the classics, lear learning the writings and the thoughts of Plato, of Homer, of Aeschylus, and then thinking about how that new wisdom will help you figure out what natural law should be. The organization of society based upon the idea of the consent of the governed, that all, all people are created equal, made in the image of a living, loving, reasonable creator. That concept, whether whether it, you look at its, uh, its, its, uh, how it arose within the context of China and Chinese history, which it did when you read the writings of people like Confucius, his student Mencius, who's sort of like Plato to uh, Confucius to Socrates, who advanced the idea of the mandate of heaven. Uh, well, well, you know, even before Christ was born, the mandate of heaven concept was the idea that a leader has a right to rule to the degree that the laws that they're that they are representing as an emperor or a, a manager is in harmony with with the the laws of heaven. Tiangmin. That's a concept that's a very important one. And Mencius makes it very clear that that when a leader abrogates and acts with out out of harmony with God's creation out of harmony with the mandate of heaven, he loses the mandate to rule. And the people have an obligation to overthrow said ruler to institute new laws that will better protect their well-being. That's that's very much reflective of certain things that people might have heard when they, when they uh, studied the American Revolution and the thinking of the founding fathers, the thinking of Benjamin Franklin, the discoverer of electricity, as well as the grand architect of the process, the great conspiracy that involved forces and scientists and scientist statesmen in France, in Germany, in Prussia, in Russia, in India, that had to work together internationally to make the American Revolution possible based upon the idea that the British Empire lost the, the, the right to rule, that it was using laws that were unjust, they were not in God's will because they were based on slavery, abuse, exploitation, extraction of wealth, giving nothing in return it wasn't just taxation without representation it was taxation and we're going to kill you too and be a slave and be happy about it maybe you'll you'll get a few crumbs if you're a good slave that was the logic of what came before the american revolution and the whole idea was that rights came from a hereditary elite that your simple luck the luck that you had to be born into a, a royal family or hereditary nobility of europe that went back to the roman empire that bloodline itself was sufficient reason to give you a right to rule independent of the fact that you might be incompetent and you were all that the, all that was known by the ruling aristocracy the the hereditary class was what they were groomed to think of in their elite education system and their elite um grooming process to be part of this master class over slaves that is something unnatural they never learned real skills not like Benjamin Franklin, who always made a point, or, or Da Vinci. Ben Franklin, if you look at how he thought, read his autobiography, look at his life. He was like a, a Leonardo da Vinci of his time, as were others who, under, who were both poets and scientists, as well as statesmen and diplomats. They were, they, were, they were intersectional in that sense, and they saw the universality in things. They saw the potential of what we could be instead of the ugliness of where, where we were as a, as a, a decrepit, abused people who didn't have access to their greater divine powers, but that would require certain political miracles to be made possible, like the American Revolution, and like the freedom of the mind 
to then move in new ways when you had a political system that allowed for the consent of the governed and the representation of the people based upon the sovereign nation state system as a technology. The, te the government itself, as Ben Franklin understood, and many of the best founding fathers, or all the way back, who were Platonists, who were studying the works of Plato, they understood that technology, government itself is like a metaphysical technology. There's many moving parts, like a machine, right? The machinery of government, we use the language. But not all governments are created equal, right? Not all constitutions are created equal. Not all car engines are created equal. But there's many moving parts, many different laws that all have to work together under a unifying principle that has an outcome. It has a purpose. That's where you have you need to have a good constitution. Not like the British. If you look at the British Constitution of Canada, where I live, it literally says in 1867 that we are a nation who have, have these rights given to us by Her Majesty Queen Victoria. What the hell is that? The concept of human nature is so degraded to think, oh, uh, that one person, the sovereign, can give rights and thus implicitly take them away? That we exist for the, the purpose to promote the interest of the, of the British Empire? That's what it literally says in our preamble in Canada. To promote, we confederate in order to promote the interests of the British Empire. Not the general welfare, not the well-being of the people. The, gener the, the welfare of the British Empire as a part of the great game. That is a, a poison toxicity for any type of machinery of government. And that's why we have an, an embedded deep state structure within Canada that can subvert the good. So whenever we're thinking about the growth of technology, whether in the form of government, why is it that the oligarchy wants to destroy the nation state system? It's because the nation state is a, is a power. It, it's a power to do things. That means that things, those things, if you have a low qual culture that encourages immorality and stupidity, those things that will be done by that said government will be fascist and destructive. But if you have a culture which actually holds on to our, our value structures that are true and in harmony with natural law or the mandate of heaven, you could do great good. You could, you could destroy the structures of evil as have been done by great leaders throughout the time who often tend to get shot if, you, if we haven't if we if we've been paying attention so i say all of this as a bit of a rant um but it's really important that people think about this and how it parallels the growth and the discoveries that are made possible that that people like john f kennedy or earlier franklin roosevelt encouraged or earlier lincoln and his followers encouraged by great infrastructure projects that allowed us to overcome those limits to growth and apply new discoveries by going to space, by looking to the atom, the unknown, and leaning into the unknown with the faith that we have the creative powers to make those discoveries as we go into the space, as we go into the small space, the microcosm, and unleash, if we're, if we're wise, great, great energy that could desalinate the world's oceans, that could feed the world a million times over, and that could green deserts. So... Let's uh, let's take this little this little rant. I hope that it uh, it resonates a little bit as we go into a commercial break. And uh, hopefully when we come back, some Joaquin Flores will be with us. And if not, you're going to hear more ranting from me. So this has been Connecting the Dots. We'll see you in a few minutes. TNT Radio's Patrick Henningsen. There's a dark cloud which is gathering over Ukraine. This has been an absolute disaster. In the last month alone, as I reported previously, Ukraine's lost 13,000 troops in October. So what does that mean? Well, you can guess that recruitment is probably down. So right now, the government in Kiev, the Zelensky government's doing forced conscription. Morale is at an all-time low. Uh, we've also seen conscientious objectors uh, who are taking to social media like Telegram, who reported uh, that they were just finished a six-month prison sentence uh, after refusing to go to the front line. Some of the forced conscripts rebelled, were imprisoned for six months, did a six-month sentence, and then the day before their release, they were put into a van and then sent to the front line. I kid you not. Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. 
our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. Today's News Talk Radio. Now we're talking. TNT. All right, this is Connecting the Dots. I'm Matthew Arid. I am your host. With me today is uh, Joaquin Flores. Now, a few years ago, I just want to say a little story. Hey, Joaquin, how you doing? Good, good. Cool. I just want to tell a, few, a, little, a quick little story here. Back in uh, January 2019, I was sitting in a cubicle in a, in a university, um, very, very demoralized by the fact that there was a sort of air of green fascism all about me. Uh, the, the three people in the entire university I could talk to, I had to whisper when we met in the corridors about geopolitics, the economic breakdown, you know, Vladimir Putin, you know, and um, couldn't 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 be overheard saying anything. Right. Um, or else you could be reported. So I was getting a little bit I was feeling the crunch, the pressure of this invisible weight of liberal fascism and thinking, damn, I need to figure out how to do something else. And um, I, I, I wrote a few little, I was writing some of my thoughts down um, as, as little articles, vignettes. And uh, the first person to uh, to publish something that I did was uh, somebody who, who ran a, a pretty popular uh, website at the time, a news magazine online called uh, Fort Rus. And uh, Joaquin said, yeah, this is pretty cool stuff, man. Thank you. And 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 I started I started writing for Fort, Fort Russ with Joaquin and uh, we became good friends. And that gave me a, a stepping stone to branch out and really explore alternative media in a more serious way than I had done previously and uh, and create a new a new uh, life raft to jump ship from the Titanic of liberal fascism and uh, start carving out something a little bit more in harmony with my soul and mind. So thank you, Joaquin, for giving me that life raft. And so- It's all, I, man, I, I, uh, likewise, I mean, I think it's been a, just a, a been, when you I remember now um, and uh, I had been receiving, you know, many submissions for like, basically op-eds, editorials and stories. And uh, it's I mean, I, I was very happy that people wanted to at times submit things or whatever. But that didn't mean that it was like quality stuff that I would want to run, you know, I mean, or that it was up to the I would say the the level that we wanted to present to the public um without a lot of editing and because we didn't have a budget and we had good submissions from people that things that needed work man your stuff was just like cream it was and uh i just i i felt an immediate connection with um your your motives with your with your with your energy with what was going on behind you and you so i just yeah so it's been a very symbiotic relationship and thank you yeah that's great man thank you um and i i didn't tell you this either but you, uh, we had a long, a long telephone conversation, and you're up there in Serbia, um, and uh, we had a couple of long conversations actually while I was at work, and I was just really enjoying those things. And that was actually one of the things I never told you this: that when I got back to my desk one day, my uh, my supervisor said, "It's unacceptable that you're uh, that you're walking away from your desk having conversations. Uh, you, I don't think you're you're very uh, you're fitting in here very well." And that was actually that led directly to my getting fired, my my getting canceled. Which was great because that happened the very same day that Strategic Culture called me up saying, "Hey, we really like your stuff on Fort Russ. You want to write for us?" And it, that was like the first paying gig that I was like, "That's divine. That's a divine intervention right there." If ever I saw one, same day I get fired from or told not to come back. Yeah, fired from Dawson. Uh, I shouldn't say that anyway. From that college is the same day I get this job offer. So that was that was just again. I think you participated in some divine intervention into my life in that sense. So thank you for that. I mentioned already that you're based in Serbia. You are a, an amazing geopolitical animal analyst. You've got one of the best Telegram channels that I know. I, I encourage everybody who has Telegram to go and subscribe to you. New Resistance, t.me backslash New Resistance. You also are the director of the Center for Strate uh, Syncretic Studies. Um, what is it, first of all, as, a, as an introduction to the audience that made you as an American decide Serbia, Belgrade is the place I want to be? 
I feel like that's 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 where I want to be right now. Back in I don't know when was it 2013 14. What what what, what yeah, were you it was today? like 2010 11. But yes, but yeah, it wow. was. Um, I actually had very similar experiences like to your own. I um I was in a a labor union. I was an organizer and business agent negotiator, and I believed in the and believe in the the plight and the cause of the workers and you know who are there, and that's what got me involved. And but in the environment, in the same way that knowledge and 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 learning and teaching and discovery brought you into the academia, you know. And then once you're there, though, you see that it's like a machine. You see that there's soullessness in the institution. And and so I had a similar experience with soullessness in an institution which is supposed to exist like for some good or for right. And instead, it's like it's like a what's the word? A shell, a hollow shell. Yeah. So that's, you know, I, I, I basically quit, um, but I got in enough trouble to warrant a quit before they fire me type of situation. And then um, I made my way to Belgrade, Serbia. I consider it the center of the world. I and mean, I just consider it to be, it's like, if you're a, um, like a geopolitical analyst and you're studying or following trends that you want to have in-person contact with people and you want to be geographically located and maybe there's a network of, uh, you know, um, other writers and there's going to be embassies and contacts and people that you meet. Uh, and it's like, it's kind of like what for, for artists who talk about Budapest, I would say Belgrade is like for geopolitical and kind of, uh, you know, OSINT intelligence analysts and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. Belgrade is the place to be, I think. And um, it's been very good to me. And I have like, you know, developed a philia, as they say, like for um, the culture of the Balkans, not like, you know, the Serbia versus anyone else, but just the, the Balkans culture. I've developed a very strong philia for it as a Mexican-American. Like I see some connections and there's a lot of that kind of uh, hot bloodedness at times and a lot of uh uh, you know, passion and, and spice in life. Um, but you know, yeah, I, I, it, it worked out, I think, I hope. And, um, I've got kids now here. So it's like, um, yeah, that's the, that's the story. I was just completely done with, um, the lies and, um, you know, the inauthenticity. Yeah. And I'm like mm -hmm. yourself, I'm like, look, I'm, I'm basically in the right thing. You know, it's, it's, the institutions need serious reform. You know, it's it's not me. Yeah. It's the institution, right? So, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Well, I, I got a question because you're sort of in the center of of a lot of things, and in the, you know the whole East European um, bloc is is a real major hotspot, a, a geopolitical pivot for the future. Um, it's a bridge between East and West, North and South in many ways too, especially when you consider the international North South transportation corridor. Uh, which is sort of like a, another variation of the Belt and Road Initiative program, very different from the types of, of uh, systemic economic planning that we see coming out of the Davos crowd or Wall Street. It's a very different way of thinking about value, uh, credit emissions, uh, how nations cooperate. And uh, I know right now there there was this week or yesterday the Primakov readings, um, an international forum, very, very important international forum. Lavrov spoke in Russia um describing the post-globalization age and there is a, a, a very different way of thinking about what is the world how does it work what type of systems should should emerge um what would what how would you describe the post-globalization age what does that look like to you i guess you know it depends in terms of like looking at the map of the world um mm -hmm. what, what you're going to see is like if you were to visualize a map right now and you get, could see all of the boats carrying goods like uh, across all of the waterways, right? You will see like a decrease of transatlantic and trans-Pacific uh, freight and uh, just a decrease. And you're gonna see an increase in like rail, mostly. Rail, mostly. And the way I like to describe it to people because it's very interesting that we have this kind of self-narrative through our culture and through our self-beliefs. It was promoted very heavily in my country growing up, the United States, like the, the space age, 
then the information age and all of that. So we have this idea that like globalization and this idea of transoceanic trade, which is the main driver of, 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 uh, of uh, globalization economically uh, in terms of the physical logistics of it. Um, wh it. What's interesting is that as high tech as we think it is, this is like a 16th, 17th century technology, right? This is like how uh, Europe came into contact with North and South America. This is how, right? So this is how we kind of got into this building a world the way we see it, where like uh, port cities are much more important than like river cities or other, right? Whereas in mm -hmm. back in history, you could have some advantages to either, you know, but the idea that if you're on the ocean um, and then you have a port and then that, that port is actually, and I know this is interesting, but I like to use the word almost like a time warp to other locations, like a wormhole, because going back hundreds of years, right? And even today, the the travel of boats is like faster than a caravan of horses or donkeys because caravans on land historically don't they don't gallop right they go at the pace of walking unless it's the pony express and you're going to have fresh horses like one guy like trade by land is the is the speed of walking and trade by sea was four or five times greater than that right so this is like talk about time is money right economics right so it's very interesting so moving forward, like here we are. And, you know, I know it's kind of funny, but I guess the steam engine locomotives and all that came into being when, like around the 19th century by and large. And yeah, like the we, 1830s, I guess they started. Yeah. And... yeah, we don't forget that part. Like, so then when we think about trains, like that seems very low tech. And I'm like, yo, like boats is actually the low tech thing. Like trains is actually right. the- We were the doing boats 4,000 years ago. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. So we have this image of ourselves, like in this like kind of super high tech and we, you know, just the, you know, like, but in reality, it's, um, we're really, um, our, our ideas about the kind of, and forgive this kind of cliche analogy, but- is definitely dated, but you know, the ideas about the kind of software that we want to run in society are like we're running it on 17th century hardware. Like the idea that you're gonna have that you're gonna have new discoveries and you're gonna build human population density or you're gonna build, you know, new, whatever you're gonna do, right? You're not gonna get that from uh a primary reliance on the very slow moving, inefficient transoceanic trade um there's a whole other array of things though matt that have to do with you know power imbalances the relationship between the countries that built the boats and the countries that we forced to like later receive the boats like we are still working through those relationships like right. the story's not over yet like a lot of countries in the world that were forced to receive you know portuguese spanish english dutch boats historically Right. Or only now, like in the present year, like in the past, well, really going back to the post-World War II period, you know, um, mm. maybe with the exception of uh, what um, the Haitian rebellion, maybe the Philippines, uh, Mexican revolution. There's some exceptions, but you really get to the post-World War II period where you get a lot of independence for yeah. countries. Right. So so-called nominal independence. Um, but those relationships that keep them from being fully independent are still connected to this re world relationship that was built like hundreds of years ago based upon transoceanic travel. So that's kind of some of the angle that I'm yeah. looking at with what the world looks like moving forward, you know, like more rail. But that's just a very like if you're looking at the map, that's not how we live our lives. That's not how how we work or how we live. Right. That's not what the quality of our goods are, what the color or mm. Mm -hmm. smell of our culture is right like this is just talking about what the map if you were to look at the map what you would see you would see yeah. less boats traveling the ocean and you'd see more activity on rail no that that i and i appreciate that first degree because you have to have sort of a, a sense of the material expression of what a what a civilization looks like that has a future versus a civilization which is contracting which is losing its right. ability to create its future so one of those things you would tend to see would be the land power and I, I like your appreciation for for land versus sea power and the superiority of land power 
Um, right. Because yeah, like you're you're not just building when you build a massive rail like the Trans Siberian or the the current rail systems being developed that are sometimes high speed. China has something like what forty thousand, fifty thousand kilometers of high speed uh, rail. Yeah, three, it's crazy, right? And they're and you just in. think about well, they're totally in. They're totally committed. They have magnetic levitation. We got zilch. Canada zilch. Right. The U.S. maybe what hundred fifty kilometers of high speed rail, yeah. if that. um but there's so much more going on right like you're also building up industrial zones you're you're building up connectivity that allows your people to move more freely all of these things how is that different from a why would somebody who wants a world under 15 minute cities um not want how does this this counteract the type of desire of of a 15 minute city fanatic yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I would say, first of all, there's like two types of 15 minute city people. There's like reasonable people and there's like, excuse my French, totally bonkers people, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea, you know, that we're going to that it would be ideal if work was like closer to home as opposed to these long commutes where we're in these boxes for hours in traffic in soul crushing traffic. Like <laughs> when we want to be home or want to be close to home. Watching the sunset from a car window with four lanes on either side with the AM radio on is a form of slow suicide for some people. So I would suggest, you know, that there's something as much as the brand and the word has been destroyed and dragged through the mud by people who really do not like us at all. And I don't. And that's the other. Those are the bonkers people, Matt. Um, 15 minute city is really two different things, you know, much like the fourth industrial revolution. There's theirs. There's ours. Much like, you know, many, many of these things that are going on, um, the elites get ahead of the curve and then they take the language from us or they take concepts that relate to things that seem at the face of it could work. And then they just take you on some whole other direction. And I'm thinking now of Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. You know, think about all the people, Matt, who have legitimate concerns about water, air, toxicity in, the, in, in everything, food quality um water mineral right um birth defects drugs that that we're experimenting you know things that are getting to the fda right these are the real ecologic and human health issues and for to make everything mm-hmm. about global warming is very similar to 15 minute cities matt like in other right. words people that were that really had a pro-human you know pro uh rationality view of you know, what does it mean to when someone works two hours from where they live and, and how can we make that a closer distance or how can we think about things that that fix that is not bad. Right. Yeah. But then to use that as has some whole like green scheme and the subsidy and, uh, you know, five bug eating ceilings and little yeah, prison right. windows, like the smart right. city as a 15 minute city, you know, they it's yeah. the smart city people um, as I, it's called a chrono. Uh, chrono urbanism or uh, in German chrono urbanismus, which is like, I know it's very Schwabian chrono, chrono urbanismus. So you have chrono urbanism, which is this idea that when you dig into it, man, it is so crazy. Like I had to reread what I was reading twice because I thought it was nuts, but it has people walking three to four hours a day. So it's very strange because, yeah. So in other words, it's not a 15 minute city. It's a smart city. So in other words, like they they you haven't the, the the distance from your work hasn't changed. You just no longer can drive your car. Right. And right. Let, and let's let's you, put this on pause because yeah, this yeah. is very, very fascinating. We'll pick up this thread right. when we right, come right, back right. after a brief break. Uh, this has been Connecting the Dots on TNT Radio. We'll see you in a couple of minutes after a word from our sponsor. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. As a meteorologist, I look for common threads in the weather. And common threads are absolutely essential when looking at the climate situation. Because you see, it's not really about climate. Let's take a common thread between Al Gore, Dr. Michael Mann, and our infamous climate ambassador, John Kerry. Al Gore, first of all, his father voted against the civil rights movement. Secondly, Al Gore was a state senator in Tennessee. Guess what's in Tennessee? A state park and a giant monument to the founder of the Ku Klux Klan. How come he didn't see that over there? What about Dr. Michael Mann? 
saying that climate deniers, and I suppose I'm one of them over there, are a threat to children and grandchildren. Very interesting since he supports policies that have reportedly ended the life of 60 million kids before they came out of the womb, three quarters of them people of color. And then of course, there's John Kerry. That's the man who supposedly threw his medals over the fence at the White House and yet we see him show up at these meetings with all his medals, right? What kind of hypocrisy is that? This is a man who wants us to start in the face of record-breaking food production, somehow or the other, get rid of the agriculture so that we can cut CO2 emissions. You see the common thread between all these people? They're all hypocrites. They all follow the same kind of thing that they do with climates. They're sanctimonious know-nothings, and that's exactly what this is about. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. What do I love about riding? It's the thrill. The excitement. Riding gives me a sense of freedom. I feel so connected to the road. Riding is like therapy to me makes me feel alive. Love riding? Back off. Deconstructing psyops, propaganda, and mainstream media garbage. Connecting the dots. You're with Matt Arrett and Connecting the Dots on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we're back here with Joaquin Flores. And um, I, what I really like about you, Joaquin, is that you both have a, a deep moral commitment and intellectual commitment to uh, fighting evil, defending the good, uh, while at the same time, not oversimplifying things. So you believe in the, in a simp in a, the simplicity and truth of good and evil, while at the same time, you're able to lean into the complexity, appreciate the nuance, and sure enough, you know, a lot of people, they react to the absurd extremeness of the bug-eating, transhumanist, you know, blob of, of immoralism, amoralism, whatever you want to call it. It's so absurd with kids getting, you know, uh, drag time story hours and all of these things. And, and so I'm not going to go on to a big rant there, but they will often then go to the other extreme and say, well, the reason why all of this happened is because we gave women the right to vote. If we just go back to our traditional values that we could hold on to, right. where women were women and they were happy in the kitchen and, and men were men and, 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 uh, and, you know, pollution, that's a global warming myth. There's no such thing. Who cares about pollution or who can, they, they then over, they, they lose the sight of the fact that no pollution really is an issue. We, we did screw up by clear cutting rainforest. Like the, these are things that we could deal with using technology, using organization. Uh, maybe women should actually have the right to vote. You know, some countries, they only got the right to drive a car like last year, right? Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. In Quebec, I think they got the right to vote, you know, when people were alive today. Like, you know, my grandmother was alive when women didn't have the right to vote um, in Quebec. So all that to say, we do need certain ideas of equality of improvement. Was that in 1956 or something like this? Sorry. Something like that. It was in the early 50s in Quebec. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. For some reason, that number jumped in my head. Sorry, my bad. Yeah, no, no. Switzerland, I think it was like the 70s or something. It was, um, <laughs> so you, you, we definitely have progress to make, and you don't want to throw out the baby yeah. with the bathwater. And you were just introducing the fact that there's two different kinds of ways of thinking about 15-minute cities, about the terminology of fourth industrial revolution. I was hoping you could speak more about that. Like, what does, what, what is not an evil version of this? Because people hear fourth industrial revolution, and that's like that's Satan right there. That's the devil. Right. What what yeah. what would be a what what what's a saner looking uh, approach? What is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let me affirm first of all that the Schwabian version of the, the World Economic Forum version of the fourth industrial revolution is mm -hmm. a satanic hellhole or whatever you just called it. You know, whatever you just described it, I'm on board with that description. So, for the record, I agree with everyone who's saying focus on this fourth industrial revolution problem and fight back against it i'm all on board with them don't get me wrong but then again like you're saying there's two really definitions of there's really two meanings there's two possibilities um 
they've what they've done is they've taken this very um i would call it like a historic historicist or, or historical materialist conception which is influenced very heavily by people like from the 19th century in germany like Dietzkin, like Engels, like marx and they and and where you look at phases of history in terms of the economic development so um for example and you would have like early history like prehistory then you would have like hunter gatherer you know after the nomadic then you would have like sedentary then you would have like slave kind of societies or when one group had absorbed another group maybe they had a two-tier class system or something like that then you start getting class systems and things like that then you move into recognizable history that we might say oh at this date and time so then they say oh there was like the slave period in history then there was like the medieval feudal period of history and now we're like in the capitalist industrial mercantile yeah, okay. yeah well then you get into the then when you look at the modern stage of history then they subdivide it further like you say the mercantile the whatever and so then that's what they do with the first industrial with this whole industrial revolution scheme like the first second third fourth industrial revolution like that those are all within the the capitalist or industrial stage of history but it's within that same schema it's like the same rationale like we're moving forward in time we're making new discoveries we're adapting those discoveries to our life and to our work some of them work out well some of them not so well for everyone some not for everyone but very well for some people so lots of good and bad mixed in there you know it's like life so but what happens is that um well sometime around like 2000 late 2000 aughts or 2010 or something there was a, a trade fair i don't remember if it was in uh, uh munich or something like this forgive my ignorance but it was definitely in germany um it might have been in cologne and it was a trade fair where the term industry 4.0 was like first kind of recognized like as a term called industry 4.0 and it's uh, this was prior to Schwab by a number of years. Um, he he jumps on this term. He likes it a lot, you know. But there have been people like Jeremy Rifkin who had just recently written a book called the you know the Third Industrial Revolution. So you kind of get into uh, just on the deep just on the nomenclature, like whether this is the Third or Fourth Industrial Revolution, you know, that we're kind of entering into is a debate right but within the scheme like what does it look like if something works like what does that mean so it's like do people right are people being repressed or not repressed right are people able to express their individuality and make decisions or are they being told like go in this line sit in this box do this thing to behave right there's and i know that that mm. reality is like obviously we're not just a bunch of criminal anarchists running around right and there's going to be rules and laws, but um, that doesn't mean that you can just tell people, oh, look, every, there's an illness, so uh, we can't prove it, but everyone must now just not leave their house, right? Those are the kind of things that obviously don't work, right? So for, for human freedom, for human individuality. So um, I would say that on the face of it, it's like, um, are things going to get more expensive or less expensive or conversely like are your taxes going to go up or down in effect because mm -hmm. you can have taxes built into products effectively privatized taxes or profits if you would that are far in excess of what any market competitive value of that thing would would you know give you on, on in a fair market right so we're talking about monopoly practices really in pricing so do you want you're talking about those very basic things like those are the things that the Schwabians want to make worse, you know, in their vision of fourth industrial revolution. Um, but what they're actually doing, Matt, is they're trying to delay the actual economic changes that are coming. And they want to invest first, my friend, on the coercive technologies, because the the problem is that the um, the direction that the uh, that technologies are going 
um, potentially and very realistically, and I would say on their own, right? Um, meaning humans being human on their own, not like <laughs> not growing in a petri dish by itself, but through normal human inquisitiveness and the way that people interact with the world, like there's the, the way that the technologies are going, are going in a direction that does not work for the either the power elite structure or the way that they've been doing things, like for their structure or their way of doing things um, in the in the in the collective West. So they have obviously are in a very financialized system. And they also understand that if you invest in new technologies, that increases the problem. If you invest in new technologies that then reach people, like then reach markets, like if, if those then become products that people have, and, um, and those, and we're talking about real discoveries, by the way, we're not talking about added features or, yeah. or uh, conspicuous consumption, right? Um, <clears throat> we're talking about genuine innovation and discovery, like applied to technology. Um, those improve people's lives. They make things cheaper. They make work easier, right? So those are like three very important criteria to think about when you think about like, who, what are they pitching? Like, are they saying that you're going to have less or that, things that we have now are going to cost less, right? Like I'm saying that in the, that, that the technologies and the way that if you actually look at the fourth industrial revolution, they're calling it that so that you don't look there. They're calling it that because they, these people are like, they understand market testing and central casting and what characters mm. look like. Like it's very obvious that Schwab is a villain. It's very obvious that Bill Gates is a villain. Like anyone from that was, you know, spent day one on a set for any basic, you know, reality show or sitcom would be like, this is how you have to cast people. So to pretend that these are different worlds or that people don't know this stuff or it's not common sense is totally bizarre to me. It's very obvious that these people are being put out there so that we go, oh, wow, the future, how ugly. I mean, there's going yeah. to be people that are all on into it for their own reasons, but it's very right. much meant to kind of perpetuate these divisions as well. Yeah, it does seem like we're we're being played as if we were sort of in a, um, a bad B movie sometimes and people can't differentiate how the casting works and how we're we are falling into certain profiles. And I know many people who don't like the Great Reset, they got a sense of this agency which has infiltrated our governments that has very bad intentions, that's willing to take down buildings as an excuse to uh, blow up whole nations in regime change, people who have like woken up to different elements of this will tend to go to the other extreme again and say, well, the solution is no government because I see that government has been used to do all these evil things and hurt me. And thus the solution is, well, no government would be the opposite of bad government. And no technologies, technologies have been used to make bombs, to make surveillance states, to make modern panopticons, to control and enslave. And thus, no technology is the solution to bad technology. And they don't think, well, what about why are we not looking at all of the examples throughout history of human beings using government as a tool for the good or using technology not to make bombs, but the atom can also desalinate water and provide cheap, affordable electrical power for people and industry. Why aren't we looking at the good use of those things in order to take back and use them? So I'm I, I, I'm happy that you just outlined that the way you did, because, yeah, the idea of just doing the falling for these false binaries of just saying, well, if we just didn't have technology and we were just living right. in little yeah. local micro micro hippie communities, we'd all be good and there wouldn't be an oligarchy out to kill us anymore. No, I think we're falling for a trap. Uh, there. Yeah, I mean, how do you get there is a big question mark too but i mean yeah everything from kind of like anarcho primitivism to ted kaczynski to a lot of or even even some normal anarchist models suffer from this problem as well it's like besides how you can't get there right besides the fact that you can't even get there right you can't even what, what's your strategy to to do that I and mean, we all saw the movie fight club they blow up some buildings or something like how do you do that right like that's not going to happen right there was actually there was a time in the past well, it could if you um, if you're if you're if you're using you have FBI handlers perhaps, <laughs> but you're not going to be your own agency then. <laughs> right, right, right. That's right. That's fair. Yeah, good point. Like they had, 
look with the with the with everything from <clears throat> uh there's definitely a problem in the way that cities are designed if you live in a city there's definitely uh almost anyone that when going back to the 90s there was a trend in the 80s and 90s to like close off a, a, an old street or main street and to make it like a, a walking street like a promenade maybe they'll build like a parking structure and then there's like maybe a mile or half a mile that's just it's great for you know teenagers out on dates maybe movie theater restaurants and it's just like a whole thing right um that is like the main idea behind the original 15 minute city stuff and it's very like positive you know the idea that look you're gonna have uh kind of areas that you can park and walk and it's actually easier and it's and then you go back to your car and then all the freedoms back of having a car maybe you live 20 30 miles away from where you wanted to go but then where you are it's like a think about it, or an outdoor mall or something like this you know um 15 minute cities has extended that um in in countries like going back to ancient rome um you had uh curios they're like apartment building houses but the bottom floor is like a mall you know and then so if you have a couple of those buildings together and then you're building a community where people live and work kind of symbiotically right and then you have like a beautiful uh you know a classical fountain in the middle and a statue and stuff very inspiring people have lived very happily like that so um as an american uh, and, and I love old cars. I had, you know, I love the old Chrysler 225, 235 flat head six. I had Chrysler Mopars. I love old cars. I love vehicles. I love car culture. I love the open road. I love Route 66. You cannot take my, I'm like, I'm like to cars, but people are like the NRA people with guns. I'm like with cars. So for someone like me to be talking about, well, here's what the positive vision of that looks like. You see what I'm saying? Um, is coming from me, if people who know me, that's like a big deal, right? Because I'm very much like cars are definitely good, you know. Uh, I'm definitely pro individual owned, privately owned transportation. Um, even those projects, Matt, where they want to have cars, but then people just drop them off for other people. Absolutely. Joaquin, a man. Dude, you, there are so many threads that you just introduced that I want to keep pulling on. We got to have you back on, and we will. All right, very, very yeah. soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your, yeah. your insights, your experience. And uh, the next time we talk, I know exactly what threads to pull on, and we're going to take it even further. Um, do you have any last thoughts for where people could reach you or how they could follow um, your work? Yeah. Telegram, and the resistance, and thanks again for your opening words. The feelings are mutual. Wonderful. All right, this has been connecting the dots this has been Joaquin Flores people can go to his channel in the description box uh, we're gonna go for a short break and we'll be back for the third segment see you soon